Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. It was 50 years ago today the nation and the world were stunned with word that Dr. Martin Luther King had been assassinated in Memphis. The nation erupted in response. The civil rights movement altered course. We're talking about that day and its impact with three St. Louisans who have that perspective. Jamala Rogers is executive director of the Organization for Black Struggle. She's also a longtime columnist for the St. Louis American and author of the book, Ferguson is America, the Roots of Rebellion. Vervis Jones is former St. Louis City Controller and a Vietnam veteran. Mike Jones is a former senior advisor in St. Louis County, a current member of the Missouri State Board of Education, and on the St. Louis American Editorial Board. Thank you all so much for coming in. Great to see you. Thank you. Jamala, let me begin with you, and I'll have the same question for everybody. You were a young adult at the time of Dr. King's assassination. What, what do you remember of that day? I remember uh, it being a very solemn uh, day at school, and then when I got home, uh, looking at the TV and seeing my mother's reaction, uh, let me know that this was a very serious, serious uh, tragedy in in our nation. I was 17. I was also the student council president at my school, and so the next day my thing was, folks are very angry. Uh, Let's see if we can get a student assembly so that we have something to focus that outrage and anger. And I went to a segregated high school, which uh, for, unfortunately we had a white principal who was fearful of gathering that many black students together. And so we did not have that assembly. And there was a student walkout by all of the black students in uh, the city of Kansas City. And eventually that led to a an uprising where the National Guard was, was brought in. So actually the after effects is more memorable to me than the actual day uh, because that's when I saw my neighborhood go up in smoke. We had like over, at that point, a million dollars worth of damage. There were seven people killed during that uprising. So that was my first real understanding of the kind of response that our government gives to initially a student protest that eventually erupted into a full-fledged rebellion. We'll come back to that part of the story in just a moment. But, Fervis Jones, you were a little bit older, and you had just gotten back from Vietnam, correct? Yeah. Uh, matter of fact, I had uh, been out of the Army for about uh, maybe a month and five days. I uh, got out of the Army February 26 and and was working at the post office. I had gotten involved in a program that the— uh, uh, Army and the federal government had put together that you could go to school and work at the post office and and uh, you know use your GI Bill and I was pursuing that and sitting in the cafeteria of the post office eating my lunch and uh, you know the TV is sitting there and and I hear that and uh, I just started crying you know I mean it was like a, a very uh, as, as Jamala said a very solemn occasion because it was you couldn't hear a pin drop in the uh, in the cafeteria, you know, it was just, just, you know, everybody was just stunned. And uh, so, and it was, it was, you know, it was a kind of a remarkable time because it was 1968. Uh, you had, uh, maybe Bill Clay was running for Congress for the first time and Robert Kennedy was running for president and you had all these things going on. And uh, from that point on, uh, it sparked, uh, and, and, and as Jamala said, after that, St. Louis didn't have a uh, uh, violent riots like they had every place else because, you know, you had some, I think Mayor Savannah immediately organized a 
a, a group of clergy that put together a, a process. And so I've always um, kind of like in some ways said maybe we should have done something because, you know, for a long time, you know, uh, and, and just to, to take a little, uh, uh, you know, self-promotion, I've also just wrote a book called Stalking Horse <laughs> that, that, that examines if we had followed, you know, a different pathway to politics as opposed to uh, uh, the nonviolent civil rights way, you know, because Martin Luther King was basically, you know, even though Martin Luther King's policies were, you know, I, I respected him and, and thought he was, you know, just a, a really brave person, a lot of courage and conviction and smart. I was more of a Malcolm X follower at that time, you know, because I just felt that, you know, the the whole thing of, of nonviolence. I was following Stokely's comments and Rap Brown and those people. Uh, we were not against Martin. We just said, you know, hey, you know, you need you you brought a knife to a gunfight, you know, and so we just felt that uh, it was it was a different time. His influence was definitely on the Wayne. When he well, was it was on the Wayne with a lot of us who were not. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it was and it wasn't. You know, there was still a large group of people who followed Martin Luther King. You know, I mean, my mother. It was generational. It was generational. Yeah. yeah right. Your recollection of Mike Jones? Uh, same as everybody else. I, I actually remember I left. Uh, I was a freshman in college at Umsel, and I left school, uh, headed to a part-time job I had downtown at H.G. Edwards, and didn't know anything about it. And when I got to work, and I was the only black guy on the little college crew that we had, and somebody said to me, I'm surprised that you're here. And I said, why? Uh he said, you don't know? I said, no. He said, Martin Luther King got killed, you know, about an hour ago. And I said, and I remember my experience, I said, wow. I mean, it was like shock, but not surprised. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, I think I'll go home. And mm-hmm. that's what I did. And you start watching it on TV. And like Jamala and uh, Vervis, it was the aftermath that was really more reticent and um Really, nineteen the whole year nineteen sixty eight was off the chain. I mean, oh, uh, incredible! It, it began with the Tet Offensive. Uh, uh, the Colonel Commission releases its report at the right. end of May. Dr. King is killed in April. Uh, Bobby Kennedy is, is, is murdered in June. Uh, you got. To, I mean, you had Lyndon Johnson you, decided not, not to run. run in March. That was uh, the March. Richard Devil. Nixon won the election. The Chicago demonstration. Yeah, right. right. So, I mean, mm-hmm. you would have had to experience. Uh, if you didn't experience 1968, you have mm-hmm. no idea of how right. profound a year was from an emotional, psychological, political standpoint. You, you made a point that I've, I've heard a couple of times today because a lot of programs are doing the the uh, King remembrance. Uh, and that is not surprised. Uh, many people have said they were surprised that Martin Luther King made it to 1960. Well, I, I, uh, last week, or uh, and you know everybody's self-promoting. I got a column uh, <laughs> coming out commentary this week that, that talks about the difference between the change in America versus progress in America mm-hmm. after after King and the Colonel Commission. But I think. One of the things that you take from the black experience when we're honest talking about it is that black leadership that is uh, pressing for change against a, a, an oppressive status quo historically is always at risk. Mm-hmm. So 
Uh, you got to put uh, Dr. King being uh, assassinated in the context of Mega Evers, Malcolm X, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the next year Fred Hampton and Mark Clark. I mean, mm-hmm. so the the, the, uh, the forces of in America that have been uh, against black progress uh, have always taken black lives. I mean, mm-hmm. black lives ha- have have always had less value in America. And men and women who actually uh, uh, fight for that kind of change usually do not live to be old men mm. or, or old women. So, mm. no, you wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the thing that, that, that was, Mike was talking about, 63 was a more pivotal year for me because Mega Evers, the March on Washington, the Jefferson Bank demonstrations, the Birmingham bombings, and Kennedy being assassinated. You know, so I was like 16. And I was only 14. Right. So, so, it did, so, it didn't so you know, register. so right. for me, and I, and I sold newspapers, so I read a lot of newspapers. You know, I had a get Morning Globe and the right. Afternoon Post, so I worked all day. So so I felt that 63 had already, you know, established this country as a very violent country. It was also Dr. King's biggest year. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so, you know, from, from that standpoint, you know, 68, like Mike said, you know, shocked but not surprised because, you know, Malcolm was killed in 65. I mean, it, you know, the the from 63 to 68 was trauma. I get drafted. I go to <laughs> Vietnam. You know, I mean, it was like a, a – so to me it was a, a – I try to reflect and sometimes, and, and I, that's why I, I end up writing a book. I said because I got I to gotta get some of this out of me before I leave because – just, just as a catharsis. You yeah. Know. Let me, purpose, let me hop in. And that's the difference in in time and in you know, like right now at this point in life, this two years doesn't matter. But right. back then it did. So I experienced 1968 or Dr. King being assassinated inside the context of the 60s, and for me. The, the pivotal year was 65, the summer 65, 66. 65 mm-hmm. is Watts. 66 is uh, 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 every place else. And it's also Stokely Carmichael standing uh, on the back right. of that flatbed truck mm-hmm. in Greenwood, Mississippi, talking about uh, black power. And that was the beginning of my political consciousness. Right. So I didn't emotionally or psychologically experience the uh, civil rights movement as much as I did the SNCC years right. of, uh, right. of the post-Civil Rights Movement. Was, wasn't 68 the Olympic year, too? With the, with yes, it was. Yes. Right. That right. would have been right. October, okay? Yeah, right. we got, right. I told you, we're something every month. Okay. Right. Right. Jamala, don't let these two guys no, take I, over. I mean, no, you know, I'm she not won't. bashful at all. <laughs> but the thing that, that I think about is that five-year period from 63 to 68, uh, which was my formative years in terms of coming of, of age, mm-hmm. uh, because that was I was 15. Mm-hmm. In, in 65, and you're seeing the, I'm 63, I mean, I was 13. But I was one who also paid attention to what was going on, and I read a lot. Uh, and so the notion that things were happening other places, particularly the South, because that's where the emphasis was, uh, and my parents both were from the South, and so some of that I experienced firsthand in terms of the, the segregation, I'm talking about, you know, the hyper-segregation. But it all started to mean something as I saw people's reaction to that oppression and and looking at what my role was going to be in the world. And one, the first thing was questioning, like, inequalities and why is this happening and, and, and those kinds of things. But uh, 
but really, you know, I had classmates that were being drafted as well. Uh, some of them, you know, died in Vietnam. Some of them came back, not whole people. So you, those things, if you're paying attention, they can't help but like seep right. in and start to fig. You know, your consciousness starts to be shaped by that. And like I said, seeing the National Guard come in, rolling down the street where my high school is, and smelling the tear gas. It, it it just profoundly affected me from that point on because my thing is like these are citizens and we get in tanks just like somewhere else. So when I saw Ferguson, I mean it was like deja vu. Mm-hmm. And I remember when Ferguson happened, St. Louis Public Radio reached out to me and said, "What are your opinions and what are your thoughts about this?" And I immediately went to 1968 and the Kerner Commission mm-hmm. and try to bring it forward. Mm-hmm. It's like the same issues that came out in. In the Kerner report are still operative and in, in, in blatant in our faces, and so why wouldn't we continue to have these kinds of uprisings? You know, I want to I want to get uh, some sense of how your parents reacted versus how you reacted uh, in uh, following the uh, the shooting. But we have to take a break. We'll do that now and continue our conversation on this the fiftieth anniversary of the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King. With me in studio are Jamala Rogers, Vervis Jones, and Mike Jones. We'll continue the conversation in a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Welcome back to our conversation as we remember Dr. Martin Luther King with Jamala Rogers, Vervis Jones, and Mike Jones. Jamala, just come back, to, if, uh, if I may, to the... The, the different kind of response, I suspect it was different, to all of this of, between you and your parents. Well, at that time, uh, my mother was then a single mother, and she had five kids. And I think her reaction was one of despair and, like, you know, this— like the plight of black people was not going to go anywhere after this murder of this 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 giant of a man. Uh, I, I took it quite differently, and I think it was because I was younger. But I remember when the rebellion aspect of it started to happen in Kansas City, uh, I clearly got told, do not go <laughs> down there. And, of course, that was telling somebody like me to, like, yeah, go right, right ahead. So... <laughs> But part of what I felt like I just needed to see for myself uh, what was going on. And uh, I remember there was a certain fear about how how much this the rebellion was going to come into our neighborhood, even though I was our, our home was like two blocks away from the epicenter where all this stuff happened. In fact, the drugstore where I worked was literally burned down to the ground. And so that meant no job for me after that. So there was like some serious, like real world implications of what had happened. Um, And I don't remember us as a family, like trying to process that in that way. I I think my mother was too busy working and and that kind of thing. So we watched TV and we just looked at all the stuff that was unfolding. And of course, the murder itself then kicked off like a hundred cities across the country going up in flames. And so we were watching that and watching the reaction. So, uh, yeah, I just remember processing it with myself. I don't even remember processing it with friends, per se, like what the death actually meant. Um, so all of this was, like, in my head going forward. But 
it was the same year that I got a scholarship for to go to college and I got the sense that folks came into our neighborhood trying to pick off folks like <laughs> <laughs> And so I was the one that, ah, you need an academic scholarship there. You can go here. So uh, thinking that that would, like, quell me. But, yeah, I did well there, and I'm still, like, it's as radical as I was back then. So, yeah. Mike, you, you used the term generational. Yeah, well, I, I would say Jamal uh, uh, had a great word, despair, because if I had to pick something, my parents right. were in shock. But, I, but there was not a lot of conversation about mm-hmm. this. I think everybody processed it themselves. I think I don't even think they were surprised, but they had greater hope that something in America was changing. In 1968, and I haven't changed a whole lot since then, uh, I uh, I didn't have a lot of hope about America changing. Uh, now I have hope for America only because the opposite of hope is despair, and I don't mm-hmm. believe you should give way to despair. But I'm still not optimistic about progress in America for black mm-hmm. people. I, I, and, and per the Kerner Commission that um, Jamal just mentioned, I've, my commentary is about the difference between change versus progress. We've had a lot of change in America over the last 50 years, but if you take the mm-hmm. metrics of the Colonel Commission, we've had very little progress. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and I think as, as black leadership, the black community needs to be clearer and more analytical about its status in America and make it, its uh, philosophy uh, reflect that. But Dr. King was experienced a lot of different ways, but I think it took the air out of the sails of a lot of older black adults, if, if, if I had to just sum it up. I'd, li- I'd like to play a clip, a clip for you. We had uh, a listener give us a call. Her name is Linda McNay. She called from Quincy, Illinois, and she uh, left a message for us that touches a lot of the buttons that we're talking about here, and I'd like to get uh, your response to it. So let's listen to Linda McNay. I was around. I was eighth grade. I was walking home from school with my friend, Catholic school, by the way. We walked into her backyard Her dad came dancing out of the house, so excited. I'd never seen that from him before, and he was yelling, They shot the bastard! Yay, they shot the bastard! I didn't know what he was talking about, as I had been in school all day. Went home to my house, and my parents weren't like that at all. How did it affect me? Well, there are always those hidden races. This man had been going to Catholic Mass every Sunday. I would see him with his family marching up to go to Holy Communion, and yet he behaved in that way at the assassination of a wonderful man. In my house, we admired Martin Luther King. That's the way we live, but we know there are others in this world who do not live the same way. That is uh, Linda McNay of Quincy, Illinois. Vervis Jones, she did touch a lot of buttons there because uh, absolutely. I mean, you know, it, it was it was when you, you talk about generational. You know, on on at my grandmother's house and at my mother's house, there were two pictures. You know, Jesus Christ and Martin Luther King. I mean, it was you know, though, and sometimes you know, I think if some of the relatives you had uh, John F. Kennedy, Jesus Christ, and Martin Luther King, you know, <laughs> you know, because because I think they were they were you know they they were uh, people who had survived the Depression, uh, had survived you know World War Two, and my father was in World War Two, came back thinking that things were going to change, 
and uh, uh, and then he he went. We got back to Mississippi, and 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 in Tennessee, and we said, and my daddy said, we got to get up out of here. You know, my my my. my I remember my uncle asking my daddy, would he come back and do the farm? He said, no, I can't come back to Mississippi. My mother had the same attitude. Said, we, I'm not going back to Mississippi. I'm only going back there to bury people. You know, I'm not coming back because they had grown up in Mississippi and in Tennessee during the Depression and during World War II, and so their attitude was was totally different. We left uh, the South around 1954, 55, and moved to Chicago first, and then came to St. Louis, and came to St. Louis because my dad had a job here, you know. So so, so our our experience of racism, I mean, when I tell people I was born, and I, I went to segregated schools all my life, I don't know anything about uh, white kids in school until I started working at Newberry's out in West World, mm-hmm. West World, West World Shopping Center, and, and the bus went through Clayton. I said, golly. You know? <laughs> what is I mean, this? <laughs> this is a different world, you know. I mean, because you never left your neighborhood, you know. I mean, right. I was safe in my neighborhood, you know. I mean, you know, and, 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 and my parents didn't want me to leave my neighborhood. When I started working as a student, you know, going out to, uh, uh, to seeing the, different, the two different worlds. So, I guess, I, and I was 21 when, and I was married. So my my parents, you know, we we talked on the phone about it. But my my mother was saying, you know, basically she she was not surprised because of where she came from. You know, she had grew up in Mississippi. She had seen, you know, people. You know, I mean, we go back to when <laughs> 1850s when my grandma, well, 18. 1890s when when my aunts had to leave Mississippi because she happened to uh, have a, a baby by a white man and you can't do that in Mississippi in 1890 voluntarily <laughs> you know what I mean you can, it could happen through other means so 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 they had always you know my my father had had relatives that had left Mississippi because they had a different attitude about how much they could take. And if you had an attitude in Mississippi, you had to leave Mississippi, you know. And so, 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 so they were always, you know, basically kind of like I guess you would call them different rebellious, you know, in that sense. They would not accept the the, the status quo. So when Martin Luther King got killed, it was somebody else getting killed. And like Michael said, my father was working two jobs, and my mother was working. So you know, they didn't even. Have, I don't think they had enough time to even absorb the the despair in the same way that. Maybe other people did, or like I did, or know? or that the way we process it in retrospect, as right. opposed at that moment. To Don, to, the reality is the Kerner Commission report was released February twenty ninth, nineteen sixty eight, literally a month before Doctor mm-hmm. King died. And in getting ready for this, when you guys called and said, you know, you had to start thinking about nineteen, because mm-hmm. I hadn't thought about nineteen sixty eight in fifty years, really, if you really want to know the truth. And then you start cataloging everything that happened. And I think if you look at the Colonel Commission and you read just a summary, you would not be surprised about what the woman said on the phone Mm -hmm. because that was the America that they described of 1968. And again, 50 years later, Donald Trump is the president of the United States. Mm -hmm. So literally, while you've had at at a... I was call it even substantive change because Barack Obama being president of the United States is like landing a man on the moon in 1969. I mean, it, it, it's a profound uh, uh, cultural, psychological moment. But fundamentally, we have never resolved the issue of race 
and privilege in America. And it's fundamentally because there's an internal conflict as far as I can see, the way I would view it, in the white community about how they feel about race and privilege. And that's how you process a Martin Luther King or a Barack Obama. That's it's almost exactly. like it's almost like instead of uh, uh, the war, civil war being a war that was that was ended, it was a truce. Right. You know, it really was a truce. <laughs> yeah. If, 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 if you really if because, you really think about sense, it, really was. We, we're still fighting the civil war. When you saw those people walk marching in Charlotte, uh, North Carolina, uh, Virginia. I mean, you know, that to me reminded me. And they're not old men on walkers. Right, right. These okay. are young people right, right. who have still, who still feel the same way that that, that the neighbor uh, uh, felt saying 50 years, 50 ago. years ago. That's exactly the point I wanted to get to, how white America was impacted. You brought up my, I'll put that to you, Jamala. You've got, has white America changed? I mean, I, I guess the consensus so far is no. We've got one no, guy no, calling, I, the I, bastard I, is dead, and the no, other one saying he was a I, great I, guy. I, I would say white America has changed. I'm saying white America hasn't made progress, right. and and, and, and change is defined as just a a difference in 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 something, and and progress is is defined as the evolution towards an improved or higher state. And so, no, we haven't made progress, but we have experienced change. Your take on that, Jamal? So I I, I definitely agree, and I I think I like that analogy because. Oftentimes we get this. I'm on programs where it says, has there been any change? And you you can't say there's not been any change, but that's the key. There's not been any progress. And even sometimes there's there's change and then there's like retrograde, which means you you get pushed back. So for every time that you're moving forward uh, and there's some successes, there's this huge uh, what I call a backlash. And so when I'm talking to young people and like, why do we keep doing this stuff over and over again and why we keep investing in a system that's not for us, they bring up even voting rights. Like, why are we still talking about voting rights? Didn't we get that back in the day? And it is this sort of cycle of constantly fighting for every single privilege that you're supposed to have as a citizen. And after a while, you folks just say, well, enough of that. I'm not doing that. I'm either going to... uh, back off of this and live in my own little world and and deal with people who think like me, but I'm not going to participate. So even when you see voter engagement and you see black folks, like the the numbers, and you you could say all you want to about how much, you know, folks died for this right, but what does it really mean in in 2018? And so I I, I think my position is that, and and I've said it after I looked at the uh, number one in in civil rights and, and to to predominantly white audiences, when you see the kind of struggles that black people have had to have in this country and still having, you ought to, like, hug every black person you see that's not, like, punching you in the face Mm -hmm. because their reality is that there's no peace because there's no justice. And the, the burden of this country's problems have already always been put on black people to deal with. So our, our trying to make this country live up to its moral and civic and humanitarian ideals, it's often on us to do that. And people are just tired. But where do we go from here is the question. You know, it's so funny because I, I get a lot of social media comments about me being a bitter brother. I said, uh-huh. I'm not really. I said, if I was really bitter... Now, you know, yeah. I mean, yeah. you don't know what bitter yeah. is, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because I'm not on top of the roof with the AK-47 <laughs> shooting people. And I think that, that, that that's the thing that people miss is that 
we're probably some of the most optimistic people in the world, African-American people, given the history. And given Stony the, the current, road we try. Mm-hmm. At Stony the road we try because we still stay optimistic. I'm still optimistic. I'm optimistic for my daughters, my children, my grandchildren, and because I still think that there is, I, I, for, for some strange reason, I don't know why, I still think there's hope that things will change. And, and, and because I can't think, like Mike said, despair is just not an option for me. What about today's activism? Young blacks are out in the streets with Black Lives Matter and uh, trying to make a difference. Uh, Everyone here seems to have a a certain degree of optimism. Uh, Do you think that these young people are going to change anything? I I was going to say, I think we're hopeful. Again, as I've become a writer, I've gotten to be clear about how to use Mm -hmm. words. Optimism is is the belief that things are going to get better based on some empirical data. Mm -hmm. Hope is just that. Mm -hmm. I hope things Mm -hmm. uh, uh, get better. Uh, we were talking about literally that question in the green room, and mm-hmm. we are, all three of us uh, are hopeful, but I think we said that the real issue for this generation is do they have a theory of change and a th- critique of America? A plan. That, uh, well, first of all, before you need a plan, you need a theory of the reality, mm-hmm. and I don't think they have, a, and we kind of had that in the 60s, but it was built on, uh, generational black intellectual development that uh, explained our reality to us in a historical context. I don't think they've established that yet, and they're not yet connected back to what I would consider to be their historical protests or revolutionary roots. Yeah, and I definitely am hopeful for young people. I mean, I've been you know helping to organize young people for like many many years, and there's there's parts of them that obviously just because of their sheer energy and creativity and fearlessness that, you know, you hope will push uh, our movement forward. But it's those pieces that are critical, the strategic pieces and the, the critical analysis pieces that have been missing for a while. And oftentimes people will say young people are not listening to old folks and never have. Well, that's not really the case. I listen to 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 certain old people. When I say old people, I mean they were, they were not my gen- I wasn't just listening to my peers. Right. There were people who took me under their wing and say, Here, here's what's happening and why. And if you want to continue this life's work, here's what you need to understand. There were people who did that for me. So, And I listened to them. It wasn't like, oh, there's some old folks. They can't tell me nothing. And so I think there's young people even today that will listen to certain people. But you have to have a certain credibility. You have to have at least shown up in spaces and done something. But I think there's this missing piece of of activism in a in a consistent way that wasn't there and actually having young people say well we did, we never had the 60s like y'all did and part of that was true but there was still struggle going on but they 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 didn't see it in that way cuz they were looking for sort of the idealistic mm-hmm. piece of it and the and the uh the glorified version of what was the 60s but there's always been struggle in this country right and here's what i would just the analogy i would make is is if is a musical one if you're a young trumpet player and you want to be a jazz trumpet player you say what do i need to do you need to go first listen to Louis Armstrong, and then you need to listen to Miles Davis. Now, not that you play like Louis Armstrong or play like Miles Davis, but you must be informed 
by your plan right. must be informed by Armstrong and Davis in order for you to continue the work that they did. We haven't been, and all musicians understand that. You cannot talk to a jazz musician. I'll tell you, Louis Armstrong is the most important musician in the history of America. We haven't created that kind of lexicon or that kind of depth from a political standpoint that says, if you want to do this work, go read Frederick Douglass and then come to Du Bois and Black Reconstruction and you'll start to be able to process the reality that you're looking at today. So, uh, and I think we had the advantage of segregated schools which helped us develop a black intellectual point of view that you don't get in an integrated classroom. Right, where you got Richard Wright is, I'm reading Richard Wright in elementary school and I'm hearing about Ralph Ellison uh, you know, it's, it's it's the same thing that I I I I was noticing noticing the narrative that they're trying to to paint about Minnie Winnie Mandela. You know that she was this person who was out of control. I said she lived in an apartheid system. You know, and I go back to my elders Cleaver call comment. You can't you couldn't tell her how to tell you to take your foot off her neck. Right. You know, so her reaction would always be, you know, to to a more to people who think that they're free, uncivilized. I said, well, you 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 you're you're subject to an uncivilized system that that came into South Africa and subjugate subjugated these people to to neo slavery or apartheid slavery. So so I think that 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 that's the thing that I'm hoping that 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 happens with this younger group is that they they study the past in the in to put it contextually, not to say that you should listen to me, but you should at least understand the road. The stony road we trod, you know. I'm, gentlemen, lady, I'm going to have to leave it at that. I'm afraid our time is up. It's gone by so quickly. I'm very grateful to you, Vervis Jones and Jamala Rogers and Mike Jones for being with us and uh, giving us your thoughts on this uh, on this occasion, the 50th anniversary of the murder of Martin Luther King. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.